Christ the Lord has come to earth and he is coming again. It's worth remembering. With that, let me introduce our speaker this morning, Austin Royal. Some of you may know him. Many of you may know who he is. He is the campus minister. Roger alluded to this a few minutes ago during the prayer. The campus minister with Reform University Fellowship, RUF, down just down the street at Austin P. State University. Um, RUF is the campus ministry, in case you don't know, of the denomination of which we are a part, the Presbyterian Church in America. And one of the things that sets RUF aside or apart from so many of other campus ministries is their, is their vision statement, their, their purpose, why they exist, reaching students for Christ, equipping students to serve, and not just for four years in college, but for a lifetime, for a lifetime. Something else that sets RUF apart is that every one of their campus ministers is an ordained seminary trained minister under the authority of a local presbytery. Uh, Austin is a member, as am I, as is Luke, uh, of the Nashville Presbytery, a regional gathering of churches uh, here in this part of Kentucky and Tennessee. Uh, so those things are worth, worth knowing uh, as we continue to pray for those men as we were listed just a few minutes ago, and as we pray for Austin and for Anna Caroline uh, here in their work uh, in this community. Austin, come on up. It's good to have you here. Thank you. Richard, Mom, yeah. Um, it's good to be with you this morning. Thank you for letting me come to preach. Uh, obviously, I worship here most every Sunday, but it's good to get the opportunity to uh, open God's Word with you and, and share um, something this morning. So I, I've been here three years, and uh, so started RUF at Austin P and just kind of slowly grown, and um, we're really encouraged and excited about the fall, see what God will do in the fall. Um, thankful to have a solid core group of students involved with us right now. Uh, if, if you would, turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Psalm 2. Um, And it's, it's pretty common view, uh, even among Christians, but especially in the world, that there's kind of two sides to God. There's, there's the good side and the bad side. Um, and you see the bad side a lot in the Old Testament. He's, he's angry at everybody. Um, you see a lot of wrath, see him punishing people. And then thankfully, the New Testament comes around, and all of a sudden, this God who seems so angry is all of a sudden super compassionate and loving um, it's someone uh, that you want to be around. Um, but here's the thing. If, when we connect all the bad stuff to thinking actually bad, like thinking that it's bad, like when we throw out God and his wrath, God and his anger, we're also throwing out God's justice. We're throwing out God's goodness, things that are good. And so when we like divide God between this good and bad, like we're missing part of who God is. And it's actually a lot of very good things. You want a God who's just. We live in a world that's evil and broken. You want a God. You want a king who is just. Um, listen to this quote from J.I. Packer. I think it's in your bulletin. He says this, God's wrath in the Bible is never the volatile, self-indulgent, irritable, morally dishonorable thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary action to objective moral evil. God is only anger, angry where anger is called for. 
Even among men, there is such thing as righteous indignation, though it is perhaps rarely found. But all God's indignation is righteous. Would a God who takes as much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be morally perfect? Surely not. But it's precisely this adverse reaction to evil, which is necessary part of moral perfection, that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. God gets angry because he's good. Because he's morally righteous. Because he's perfectly just. Um, and the passage we're about to talk about talks about God's wrath some. Um, something that like we don't really want to talk about and, and don't necessarily know how to do with. But uh, I'll say this. We want it to be true. Our, our hope is in this psalm being true. Um, so with that in line, mind, let me read the text, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord, knows, uh, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord, uh, your word is always words of life to us, spoken gently and yet firmly. Um, and, Lord, we want these words to be true. I pray that you would be honored, um, you would be glorified in the way uh, that I talk about you this morning, um, that you would be made much of, that hearts would be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Anna Cowan is my wife. Uh, we've been married nine years. Uh, and um, right after we got married, something pretty significant happened. Uh, and I, a couple months after we got married, we got married July of 2010. Um, Prince Williams, the Duke of Cambridge, asked Kate Middleton, his longtime girlfriend, to marry him. Um, and they ended up getting married a few months after that. But um, I wasn't too concerned about that, but there obviously was a lot of people who were because people kept saying these jokes like, didn't people know the royal wedding happened last July? Like... Didn't, you know, don't people know that? It's like, my last name's Royal. Um, and so it's like, you know, I kind of played along with the jokes, um, but I, I kept wondering, why are all these people uh, so concerned about a wedding happening on the other side of the ocean between two people that they don't know? Um, and, and the reason is there, there's something deep inside of us that loves the idea of kings and queens, 
something deep inside us that loves the idea of royalty, honor and prestige, these traditions, crowns, castles, victory and war. We, we love the idea of it. Um, but we also only love the idea of it as long as it stays over there. <laughs> like, <clears throat> think about it. If, if the king and queen get in a boat, get on their planes, and they come over here and powerfully move towards Washington and say, hey, we're, we're bringing the throne and the kingdom to America. You, you lose interest very quickly. Um, because we don't like the idea of one person having power. It, it feels oppressive. Saying one person gets to make the decisions that everyone has to follow, it feels oppressive. It feels like enslavement. And what this text is telling us is that's how God set the world up. Jesus reigns supreme over all. He is the king. He is the conquering king. Um, and it's not just in this passage. It's, it's one of the major themes of Scripture. God is king and his anointed. Um, we see it like right after the people of Israel form. They're brought out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They, they start calling for a king. And, and God's like, you don't want a king. I'm your king. Um, but eventually God says, okay, I'm going to give you an earthly king, but you're probably going to regret it. Um, and so he gives them Saul, and then he gives them David, and David was a good king. And in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a promise that a king will rule from the seed of David forever. There will always be a king on the throne from David's line. And he says this, when your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom forever, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God promises David. He promises Israel. He promises Christians, us. There is a king who will rule and reign forever. If you look at the text, uh, Psalm 8, or Psalm 2 um, verse 8 says, the nations will be his heritage, the ends of the earth will be his possession. And if you know anything about the history of the kings of Israel, there was no king that had, like, reign that, that ruled the whole earth. It, it never happened. Um, but here's the thing. This psalm isn't just about a king in the Old Testament. It's about Jesus. Um, and if you look at the New Testament, all the New Testament writers they quickly connect the kingship of Jesus to the psalm. It's, it's spoken of all the time. Um, in one of the first prayers in the book of Acts, Acts 4, uh, this is directly quoted, connected to Jesus. Um, there's alliterations all over the Gospels. Uh, three different times and three different prophecies in the book of Revelation, this is directly quoted, connected to Jesus. Uh, this, this psalm is about King Jesus. Um, the Messiah, the anointed Son of God, begotten Son of God, who reigns over all things. Um, so the king who we think is sweet and kind, who's pretty good at miracles, um, who's really servant-hearted, he's also a king that comes in justice and judgment, and he demands your allegiance. And with that in mind, uh, three points today. Rage against the king, the security of the true king, and then finally the goodness of the true king. 
Um, so, Rage Against the True King. Uh, Psalm 2, it begins with a question. Why do the nations rage? Why do they do this? Um, why are they plotting in vain against God and his anointed? And it tells us in verse 3, um, they look at God and think, this is oppressive. If this God is my king, following him, living for him, it, it feels like enslavement. Uh, the, the text says, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. Following God, following his king, feels like shackles. Uh, it feels like a burden. Um, the, thought, the thought of submitting to God and his king, uh, it feels like enslavement. Like, does that resonate with you at all? Like, could, could that be true that we, we might have that same sentiment? No, you're not a king or a queen. Um, but the idea of someone telling us what we do, what we have to do all the time. Like, think about the attitude of a king. Um, the attitude of a king towards other kings makes sense. When a king's power and control is threatened by someone or something, they get defensive. Like, they don't want to defend themselves. Uh, when a king hears about someone greater than them, bigger castle, more jewels, uh, more land and territory, um, they feel threatened and they want to respond. Their pride is spiked so they want to go out and show, no, I'm the true king. I'm the real king. I'm the one who has the power here. Um, when you think about a king um, and you think you're the king and you hear of another king, you, you actually want to see what they're made of. If they're worthy. Uh, uh, if, and so, yeah, kings kind of run on pride. Uh, but it's also, they run on selfishness. Uh, they also, they feel threatened. Everything is a threat. Uh, and so they live in a lot of fear. And so I think what the text is showing us, what it's saying is like, when we rage, like we can rage in different ways, but what's underneath the surface is a heart that is afraid, a heart that's fearful, a heart that lives with a lot of insecurities, um, a heart uh, that wants its independence but doesn't really know even what that means. Uh, what, is the word, what does the word rage make you think of? Um, I think, obviously, one of the things it lends itself to is anger, like being angry. Uh, but it actually, this word kind of means something different. It, it could be translated noisily assembles. Why do the nations noisily assemble against God? Why is there so much chaos, like organized chaos? Why is there so much reckless unrest that's directed towards God? Um, and I think if you look in your own heart, you feel that reckless unrest, these noises that won't stop, um, this chaos that you always feel, and you're always looking for something to make it stop and nothing does. Um, think about this. Uh, it's the end of a long day, and all you want to do is read a book or watch a TV show get on your phone and just look at some things, and your spouse comes in and asks you for a small task, asks you to help with something, and you quickly snap back at them. Uh, whether it's with words, your tone of voice, a look of disgust, you show them very quickly they should not have asked you. Not only should they not have asked you, they don't have the right to ask you. Like, what, what are you doing in that moment? 
uh, I think you're raging. But you're not just raging because you think they've done something wrong to you. Um, but they didn't do anything wrong. They just asked you for help. And I, I think they've broken one of your rules, one of the rules to your kingdom. At the end of a long day, when the kids have been crazy, I just want to sit and relax, or at the end of a hard day at work, the rules are, you don't ask me to do anything. And if you do, you're going to feel my fury. Um, some of us, we think the car is our kingdom. And so when we get into a car, we, we think everyone else on the road should know they have to follow our rules. They can't drive slowly in front of us. They have to use their blinker. Uh, they can't speed right past us. Um, we think the car and the road is our dominion. And if anyone does something we don't think is right, we punish them. Maybe you blow the horn at them, maybe not. But in your heart, you condemn them. Um, I know this very well. Um, <laughs> so, but, like, keep going. Like, what, why do we rage at our children? Like, why is it so easy to get frustrated with them? Um, annoyed by them. It's, it's because they threaten things we want, things we think we need, peace and quiet. Um, they threaten our reputation because we think other people will judge us based on how our kids act in public. And so we feel like we have to control them. We feel like we need to manipulate them to obey. Um, we feel threatened by them, and so we act we recklessly and unrestly move towards them in ways that's chaotic, might be organized, but it's not good. It doesn't reflect the king. It reflects a king, your kingdom, your little kingdom, uh, and the king is insecure, proud, selfish. Um, God would call us out of that kingdom into his kingdom. But see, here's the thing. We think God's kingdom is one of enslavement. We don't think we can get what we want through his kingship. Um, I think the reality is, is when we believe that, we miss the true king. We miss the prince of peace. We miss the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, as it says in 2 Corinthians 1. We miss the God who says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. That's, that is the voice of the king, calling you to live in light of his kingdom. And yet we reject it. We want to live on our own. We think our way is better. And God says life does not work that way. Living in light of your own little kingdom doesn't work. Um, how, how can we change? Uh, that, that leads to the second point, um, the security of the king. Um, God sees all this raging. He sees all these little kingdoms going on. Um, he knows it's directed at him. And what does the text say? It, it says he sits in the heavens and he laughs. Um, you know, th th there's a, the point is, uh, it's, it's kind of, I mean, you can hear the laugh in your head. It's uh, a mocking, belittling laugh. One that uh, would make us feel stupid if we heard it. Um, one that if we heard it, from one of you, it, it would make us feel very ashamed and very small. Um, and it, the intention is not to make you feel stupid. It is to make you feel very small, though. Like, what God is saying, your kingdom is light. Not, not like bright or dim light. It's, it's light as in light salad dressing. Uh, light, light beer. Um, 
like, like it resembles the thing, but it's not really it. Uh, it, it kind of masquerades as the kingdom of God, but it, it's not. Um, it doesn't hold weight. It doesn't hold any water. Um, and so God, he, he looks at his enemies and he says, like he speaks to them. Um, he says this, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell it the decree of the Lord. You are my son that I have begotten of you. Ask of me and the nations will be your heritage. As for me, my king is already enthroned. Your, your kingdom doesn't stand a chance against the true king. Um, this is what it's saying. is like, in, Over the course of the last couple of weeks, the NBA and the NHL um, have had the finale of their season. And a champion has been crowned. And it's a new champion this year. Uh, and next year, they're going to have to defend their championship. And they probably will lose. It's very rare to have back-to-back champions. And God is saying, my kingdom, my king, my champion is written in stone. It is set. Now, it was set 10 years ago. It was set yesterday. It's set tomorrow and forever. The king is on the throne, and he will reign. Uh, he does reign. Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm. And I think that, that brings up two things. One is, that should give you a lot of hope. Um, we should hope in the true king who reigns over a world that doesn't feel like a true king reigns. Um, we have great hope, even though we feel a lot of brokenness, a lot of pain in this world. Um, but here's the other thing. It should give us a lot of hope, but it also gives us security. Like, think about this. The king is secure. He's, he's not threatened by the things you feel very threatened by. He's not undone by the things that undo you on a daily basis. He's not overwhelmed by the things that overwhelm you on a daily basis. You have a place to run to, a refuge to run to. Uh, think about this. It's Tuesday morning, Monday morning. You've woken up early before the kids get up. You, you've been reading your Bible. Maybe you have some hens going through your head. <clears throat> the kids woke up. They're doing great. And then all of a sudden, 30 minutes after breakfast, like, they just go crazy. Like, and they're angry, and they're mad at each other. They're pitching fits. And all of a sudden, you, it's 9 in the morning, and you feel like you've been awake for 24 hours. <laughs> and you were thinking, how, how am I going to get through the rest of my day? I can't do this. How am I going to be patient? How am I going to care for my kids the rest of the day? God is not undone by what you are undone by. God is not undone by the diagnosis, by the doctor appointment, by, by the bad, tragic news that comes up. Um, God is not undone by the problems at work. When you feel like your job is being threatened, when you feel like your finances, your future are being threatened, God is not undone by those things, even though you are, which means when we try to figure it out on our own, the only response is to rage. The only response is to rage against rage. And, and God is saying, no, if I am the true king and you trust and follow me, you don't have to respond in rage. Like, you can, you can do it differently. You can do it differently than the world. Um, We've had, we've had some pretty funky weather the last few weeks. Um, 
And when we purchased our house, the, the husband of the couple who sold it to us, he said, he, I remember saying this, he said, this is a great house to watch storms come in from. And I was like, okay. Like, I didn't really know what he meant. <clears throat> um, but, it, you know, we have a cool little porch. We got a lot of trees around. And, and I quickly figured out, like, okay, like the, storm in Clark, the storms in Clarksville are kind of different than other places I've, I've grown up. Like, it's not uncommon to have many, you know, storms with 60 or 70 mile an hour winds, winds coming through. And so, like, it's actually kind of cool to watch. Um, but if, if you're watching these storms, like if you just look out the window, and we have, we have trees that line our yard, like if, if you watch the wind and the rain pelting the trees, like wisping through, cutting through the trees, like it looks like the trees are just gonna be destroyed. Like they're going to break in half. Uh, and, and you know, a gust of wind comes through and you just think like, there's no way the tree's gonna make it. It's gotta come crashing down. And somehow it, it kind of stands back up, and it's fine. Um, and I think what's keeping the trees up is, is it the leaves? Is it the limbs? Is it the bark? No, like we know it, it is the roots. It is roots sunk deeply into the only hope it has. It is roots sunk deeply into the only foundation it can stand on. If the tree doesn't sink its root into the earth deeply, it will not survive. It will be tossed and blown by every storm, every gust of wind that comes, no matter how big or how small. I think if we're honest with ourselves, the small stuff really gets to us, just like the big stuff. And it means our roots aren't sunk very deeply into the king. Our hope is not in the king we are serving our own little kingdom, a kingdom that we think is going to bring us more joy, a kingdom we think that's going to bring us more satisfaction, a kingdom we think is going to bring us freedom. And God says, no, it's not going to work. The storms of life, the hard moments of life are going to crush you apart from me. You must have a refuge. And so I think this is one way I think about raging. Ragers live their life on the edge they live their life not on the edge of joy, not on the edge of goodness. They live their life on the edge of despair and hopelessness. When we rage, we are so much closer to despair and hopelessness than mercy, than love, than respect. Um, and God, God invites you to lay down your crown, to give it up, and to come and follow him. Um, and it's not just an invitation. I mean, this text, it, it backs us into a corner. It, it, he backs us into a corner. He says, this is the only throne that will survive, the only kingdom that will survive. Um, which leads me to our third point, uh, the goodness of the true king. I think I could have, <clears throat> I could have entitled this a lot of things. Uh, the warning of the true king, uh, the wisdom of the true king, the patience of the true king. I think, you, you know, we can get to the end of the psalm and think, wait a sec, all these people are raging, but God looks like he's raging too. Like, they're angry and he's angry. He, except for, like, maybe God's a little more angry because he's like, my anger is easily kindled. I will show you my wrath and fury. Um, but I think we do that, like, we're, we're missing the true king. We're missing who he is. Like, look at verse 10 and 12. 
that the king is secure. He's not threatened, which means he does not have knee-jerk reactions like me and you do. He doesn't. His, his anger is different than ours. It's good. It's righteous. Uh, look at verse 10. Now, therefore, kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in your way. When, if you're in war and you've been in war for a long time and you have a full frontal attack on your kingdom all the time, do you shoot up warning shots? Like, do you fire warning shots over and over again? Do, do you ask the people trying to destroy you, say, hey, like, be wise, be thoughtful, like, have godly wisdom. Uh, do, you, do you warn them? No, like, you, you end it, and you ask questions later, because it's very obvious they're hostile and want nothing to do with you. And that's not what the true king does because he is secure, he's not threatened, and therefore he's patient. He has a lot of patience for kings who don't know who, true the, king is, who the true king is, for people with their little kingdoms. He has a lot of patience. He shows a lot of goodness. Um, so he warns, which means like, He's not pleased with them. He's calling them to change. He's not agreeing, saying, okay, it's okay. You can go do it. No, he just warns them over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And it's only after over and over and over again that he he finally shows his wrath, that he actually finally shows you his justice, which means there is an invitation uh, to experience the grace and mercy of the king to experience the king as a refuge. I mean, aren't you fascinated by that? Like the end of the psalm, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Like we have to have the balance of God's goodness, the good side and the bad side. We want the bad side for sure. We want a just, righteous king. But he's also a king that invites you in to be his people, to find refuge in him, to find your peace in him, to find your joy in him. Uh, to find places where you can serve and not just look for places to be served. Um, I'll close with this. Uh, the, you know, if you, if you look in history, um, it's not uncommon to read stories about kings, uh, leaders, rulers, prominent people who, who commit suicide, who, who fall on their own, own sword. Um, people who instead of facing defeat, instead of having to look their enemies in the eye and say, yep, I'm not the true king, instead of having to look their people in the eye and say, yeah, I couldn't fulfill what I promised, they, they just they fall on their own sword because they're proud, because they're selfish, because they're insecure, because they don't want to live life thinking they aren't the king. Um, the The good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is he is the true king. And he laid down his glory and honor. He laid down the security of his throne to come to earth and serve people, to live for people, to love people. And the way he demonstrates that most is by falling on the sword of God's wrath for you and me. He he dies on a cross, satisfying 
this wrath and anger that seems so scary, seems unjust, seems like God can't be good. He says, no, I am good, and I'm going to show you how good I am by taking the punishment you deserve and putting it on myself. He falls on the sword of God's wrath for you and me to show you that he's the true king. A true king puts his people before himself. He leads in humility. He leads with grace. He leads with mercy. That is who King Jesus is. What, what fear and pride and selfishness interpret as bondage, God says, is freedom. And he invites you in to take a refuge in God. And just a closing thought, that this is what Psalm 2 is saying. Jesus reigns, and there's no refuge from his kingdom. There is only a refuge in him. Uh, that is my prayer for us this morning. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Uh, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for things like wrath and anger that scare us and we don't know what to do with, but you're good. We need a just, righteous king and one who in the same breath can say, take refuge in me from the raging all around you. And so I pray, Lord, that we would find refuge in you, that we would abandon all the other places we go to that we think will make us happy, that we think will bring us joy, and yet they always disappoint. Show us those places, Lord. I pray that you would also give us much hope in you and in the security of being your children, and I pray that we would live out of that, uh, that we would learn to be more gracious and kind to the people around us, um, that we would be more uh, yeah, tuned in to what it means to love you and to love our neighbor, to love our children, to love our spouse, to love our coworkers. Pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.